Hello there, I'm Peter Mansbridge. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge, and it's Wednesday. That means smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson is here from Ottawa, and so is a special guest. That's coming up. Okay, Bruce is in Ottawa, and uh, which is good to hear. Summer, spring weather, at least, is starting to sweep across parts of uh, southern Ontario, which is always nice, I'm sure. Gorgeous weather here right now. It's really lifting the spirits a little bit. Well, I think it's we're only going to be teased on that front because there's supposed to be colder weather coming in in a couple of days. Anyway, enough about the weather. Um, our special guest today is coming to us again from London, England where it's been an exciting week. And that, of course, is Andrew McDougall, who many Canadians will perhaps remember as the former Director of Communications for Prime Minister Stephen Harper. But Andrew now lives in London, where he's part of the Trafalgar Group, a director of the Trafalgar Group, where, among other things, they handle communications issues and problems and try to give people a sense of the best way to handle those kind of Difficulties. So we've actually been watching quite the story unfold, um, you know, actually all over the world. I mean, it's something like 50 million people, Andrew, have watched this interview with uh, Harry and Meghan already uh, around the world, and obviously a lot in England and a lot in America. Um, here's where I, I'd like to start. The palace spent about 48 hours trying to decide what to do and what to say after the interview aired with its variety of bombshells, which we've been over quite a bit. They came out finally yesterday with a, a statement that runs 70 words, and 70 words is not very long. In fact, I can read it. The whole family's saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much-loved family members. So that's it. That's all. That's what the palace says. So, Andrew, given your background, when you hear that statement and read that statement, what are they actually saying? Uh, I think I think it is, uh, as you hinted at, Peter, it's a very carefully crafted statement. That opening line in particular is to me a shot across the bow. It's a version of, well, nobody told us this, uh, implying that these criticisms that are now made in the public after the fact were never raised in private. Uh, and then even then they go into then disputing in a way, in a polite way, the central allegation. You know, the thing that's dominated all the headlines here was about the, the thought that the baby might be too dark to be a monarch. So they're basically calling that out saying, well, we don't remember it that way but without dismissing it out of hand because these issues, as we all know, play so, so hot across the media and, and social media in particular, you know, this has kind of put everybody back into their tribal camps of how they view the world via race, uh, et cetera. So it was meant to kind of get to that and then closing with a touch of love and warmth and, and by saying they'll always be loved. And I think that's to combat this this idea that, that was very much painted by the Duchess in the interview that that's a very uncaring, unloving, unfeeling family, which is, of course, the public sentiment right now after watching shows like The Crown. So when you're putting these words together, you have to think about 
Well, who's speaking them? Her Majesty. Her Majesty doesn't open her mouth that often, and she certainly doesn't open her mouth on things like this, uh, very rarely, if at all. And that was, if you remember the kerfuffle around the time that Princess Diana died, was the fact that the palace trying to maintain this stony silence of, you know, never complain, never explain, is, is the family motto, and just realizing that that wasn't tenable. So you had to say something. You don't want to advance the story. You don't want to give them a target to shoot back at. But you want to dispel some of the most pernicious stuff that's going around there. Basically, there's a racist, an unnamed racist, by the way, in, in the royal family. And, and do that in a way that doesn't put kind of, you know, like I said, guarantee another 10 days of this, uh, which we'll get probably anyway. And, and the determination you make is what can I say without the other side coming back on me? And, and that's the thing I think that's the hardest to predict for me, because typically that's not even up for discussion, you know that you just don't air your dirty laundry in public like this, but they've done it now. So that precedent has been, has been broken. Would they do it again? Well, they might. So we better not be too definitive or nasty in response, lest we kind of provoke a backlash that we might not win. And then you set that against, how do people view the monarchy? While people respect Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, do they respect anybody else in that family? And I know in countries like Canada, that's the kind of fear is what comes after them. And, and will the will the affinity for the institution last beyond that? So that's a lot to get into 70 words. Yeah, I was going to say. And I think they 70, did it 70 words. just about right. Yeah? How just long about you, right. And it's a version. How long do you think it? It's a version of, of when they go when they go low, we go high. That's, <laughs> that was their thinking, I think. Because they, they've done something a bit dirty or, or that just isn't done. Whatever you think about what happened and the motives for it, they, they just had to respond in keeping in their voice. And, and I think they did that without being too confrontational. Now, I know Bruce wants to jump in here, and, and he should, but let me just follow it up with one thing. As you said, 70 words, which is not much, takes them two days to come up with something like that. Can you take us inside what you think would have been happening during those two days? Who, who are we talking about? Who's sitting in the room? Who's in the room where it happened, where those 70 words happened? Yeah, so I think, you know, in, in the palace, there is a communications team. They are tasked kind of routinely with with the kind of run-of-the-mill stuff that, that the firm has to do and has to communicate on, whether that's important anniversaries, you know, passing of global figures, uh, etc. The Queen is asked for words quite frequently. So there is a team in place to do this. But I think what makes this different is there's nothing a courtier can put down on paper that doesn't have to be checked against kind of the mood in the room. And that's what would have made this different. So I think you would have had, and we obviously have Prince Philip who's in hospital and has been for weeks now. Um, so this, I think, would have been some, some version of of uh, Her Majesty and uh, those next in line, particularly uh, Charles and William, just to make sure that, that the words convey. And I think first it's you set the boundaries. What do we want to achieve? And then you set the team away to say right against that brief and then check it back with the principal to make sure that it's good to go. And, and there was no way, uh, I don't think that statement went out with without uh, the royal seal of approval. Okay, Bruce. Well, you know, Peter, I, I, I was trying to think about this question from the standpoint of, let's say that one member of the royal family called me and said, can you come over here and meet with us and we'll talk about what to do about this. And I've been in conversations of nowhere near as much magnitude as this story. I know Andrew's been involved in some as well. 
you know, just those days when some really kind of pretty unexpected and pretty awful stuff is happening and, and people who are at the heart of it need to be able to talk to somebody who's not them, who's not so close to them, who's going to be able to give them some honest kind of takes on it, even if that conversation is a little bit uncomfortable. So if I had been asked to go over and sit in Buckingham Palace with them all looking kind of gloomy and, and nervous or angry and irate, I don't know what they would be feeling. I would have said, look, there's really three questions uh, that we should address. The first is, do we think that public sentiment after this interview is generally going to be with us or tilted more against us? And that would you know, be a meaningful conversation in the sense of if you think that a public that you care about, and, you know, I know some people say, well, the only public that they really care about are, are people who live in the UK. And I think Andrew touched on the idea that, well, you know, Commonwealth countries also matter too, to the longevity and the sense of permanency of, uh, uh, of the monarchy. So I think the broader public and the question of whether or not sentiment is tilted against them based on the interview or, or largely sympathetic with them is the first important question to kind of think through as you're thinking about what kind of response. The second question is, are the allegations true or not? And if they're not true, then you have a really tricky question that's subsequent to that, which is, do you say they're not true? And if you say they're not true, because they're not true, is everybody going to hold that line or is somebody going to go a little bit like, well, I don't know, it could be true, or somebody said something that might have sounded like that. And I'm talking about the combination of the race comment and also the indifference to the mental health issues that Meghan Markle was suffering. So is it true? And if it's not true, maybe you do need to say it's not true. But when you think about doing that, that takes you to the third question and maybe the most important question for the royal family in this situation, which is, do you want this story to end as quickly as possible or do you want to give it another chapter or five? And if you decide that you're going to try to rally public sentiment with you, if you're going to say that the allegations are not true, then you better expect that this is going to continue to be a story. Because I think Harry and Meghan Markle made it clear that they were not going to be bullied uh, by members of the royal family and that they were going to stand up for themselves and clearly that they can get a platform, a huge platform uh, to say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it. So I would have actually liked to be in that meeting, um, but uh, maybe there'll be another one. Maybe we'll get invited. <laughs> Do you think yeah, but I think you'll see, Bruce, but based on your criteria, I think they, they answered that brief in the affirmative that it's not true but without nakedly saying it's not true. And this is like the recollections differ and it's sorry to hear the full extent of that means that, that maybe this stuff wasn't aired. And, and the interesting bit, and of course there's kind of endless coverage of this here in the UK, as you might imagine. And one of the most interesting was a podcast uh, that was looking at some of the, the staff that Harry and Megan had, you know, cause there's a center of bullying allegations uh, from the Sussex, Sussexes their way. And it wasn't the British staff, it was the American staff that was brought in that were the people that were getting the worst treatment from the couple, uh, apparently. So this isn't a case of kind of worlds colliding or cultures colliding. It was really just about behavior. And look, we've been in politics. Like, if I had had, had kind of cried bullying every time the prime minister had a few 
sharp words for me, like I probably would have done nothing else. Right. I mean, it's part of the, not in a nasty way. It's just the kind of hothouse environment of, of, you know, people go hot and cold and everything's the most important thing in the world at the moment. And, and you have to be able to step back and go, this isn't personal. This is just kind of the way the world is going. And I can't imagine stepping into the fishbowl of the monarchy, but then again, I, I would like to think I would go into that with my eyes wide open realizing that there are boundaries that are put around that. And when you're brought in, you know, as, as a minor character in terms of the monarchy and, and lines of succession and, and will you ever be the show, you know, to, to make it a political comparison, you know, when you're the minister of culture, you have a voice, yes, in the government, but you're not the prime minister. That's the queen in this case. And everything you have to do has to be in service of the queen and the institution mm. and having that expectation settled right when you go into it, I think prevents a lot of problems on the end of it. And I suspect we'll never know really the full extent of this um, because I think people now have kind of seen the mutually assured destruction uh, path that we're on. And have maybe now realized we've had our say they've had their say. I I wanted to raise two other things and and get your guys take on this. I mean, I was, I was, I was struck by something that was kind of in the margins of what Harry was describing and that, Oprah, as good a job as I think she did interviewing, didn't really kind of fully develop as a topic, which is the idea of the of a royal family almost terrified uh, of public will turning against them and feeling vulnerable, so vulnerable that um, they had to be really careful how they dealt with these kinds of things and how they dealt with um, Meghan Markle's ma- uh, mental health issues and and basically that everything was every instinct that they had seemed to be described as being let's not get out of place let's not get out of line let's not draw attention to ourselves because um people might come for us and say this monarchy thing it it's over and um and so i was really uh, i think i, I kind of heard it in the margins of oprah saying well how could anybody feel trapped and how could anybody feel that they were powerless and that kind of thing and in the family writ large, not just with respect to that couple. And I thought oh, that was quite interesting. And I'd love to hear what you guys think about that notion of a kind of a timid, almost kind of trapped in place, worried that it might be ended at some point, uh, royal family. And then the second thing was the allusion to a cozy relationship between the tabloids and the palace. Uh, so cozy that there were holiday parties at the palace, uh, uh, with the tabloids and that that relationship was so symbiotic that in theory, anyway, the Royal family could have called off some of the most vitriolic coverage about Meghan Markle, but chose not to. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I was really intrigued by it. And there hasn't been much discussion that I've seen since then. All right. Let me, um, let me let Andrew deal with the tabloids because he loves talking about the mm-hmm. tabloids. Uh, let me try a, a little bit on the first one. Uh, you know, as somebody who was who was there at the time of Diana's uh, death, you know that was a very revealing week about uh, the monarchy and uh, the the way it related to the people uh, and to way they related to common feeling about the issue. Because if you recall, it you know it went for days before the Queen reacted in a in a real way. Um, meanwhile, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets, taking flowers to the gates of Buckingham Palace, taking flowers to the gates of Kensington, 
where, where you know, it was like 10 feet high of flowers. Um, and the people were devastated, open weeping in the streets. And the queen was in Scotland, I believe. It was up at Balmoral. Uh, and there was this whole hesitation for five or six days about whether or not the flag should be at, uh, at half-mast at Buckingham Palace. Uh, and it was concluded after that whole thing uh, sort of passed in time that it had been a terrible mistake on the part of Buckingham Palace, the whole way they'd handled it. And the communication strategy was awful. And they brought all these professionals in uh, to totally revamp how the palace would handle things because the conclusion was they were totally out of touch uh, with the people. So the question must have been circulating around over these last 48 hours about we can't, God, we can't look like we're out of touch with the way the people are on this story, even though in 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 Britain, I, I'll, I'll leave it to Andrew to tell me, but it, it, it seemed like there was kind of a divided opinion there uh, to some degree. But nevertheless, that was the challenge. Don't look out of touch. We have to stay in touch because there's so much at stake here in terms of the future uh, of the monarchy. So that's how I'd, I'd handle the first part of your question. I'll let Andrew deal with the... Uh, try and deal with the tabloids. Yeah, I think the, I would second a lot what you said, Peter, by the way, about that. And I think that it's always this, this fear of changing times and, and are we changing with them? And, and you know, I, I like to picture Prince Charles going like mental health, like where were people thinking of my mental health when they sent me to Wales for a year to learn Welsh because I was the Prince of Wales and I had no friends. You know, nobody was talking about my mental health then. Um, so you get that generational thing. And, and plus, it's the monarchy. You just don't talk about these things, right? I'm sure they've all kind of gone through similar periods uh, of this. And, and, and they're just not used to people talking about it. So it caught them off guard. But I think you're absolutely right. In terms of the tabloids, I think it's important to qualify here because this cozy relationship came out of, in effect, two things. Princess Diana's death and, and the kind of paparazzi harassment that she was subjected to unregulated unfiltered unadulterated harassment um and, and so the decision was taken to to we have to work with the beast and, and not always in opposition to it and so every time you see the royals release a picture uh, of the kids getting older that goes on all the front pages because it sells papers and that's the deal they've done um and, and the other thing is the phone hacking scandal that happened over here where particularly the royal correspondents got a kicking for some of their practices and how they got stories. So you have to you have to weigh up the interest in the subject matter and the access to it. And the palace, you know, certainly when you when you deal with it on a political level, are super strict in how you interact with them. You know, we could barely get our official photographer in because the palace selects one photographer and they supply all the pictures, and that's the way it is. Um, so I think I think it's a bit uncharitable to, to frame the cozy relationship without kind of understanding the history and, and where it came from. And that's not to say it's perfect or it's right. And I think also the, the third issue I'd throw in there is obviously the, the last year has not been without scandal in the Royal family, particularly my namesake, uh, Prince Andrew, who's, who's kind of rightly battered for, for getting creamed by Emily Maitlis on the BBC and, and, and looking horribly out of touch you know, straightforward shooting party weekend and all the greatest hits that we all remember. It was a disaster from start to finish. 
So I think the royal family goes, it's better to manage these things in careful ways that are largely visual, largely good news, um, and and maybe, you know, realized they couldn't really um, maybe speak out as forcefully against them when, when they were taking a kicking themselves. And and there's only so many chits you can trade and, and deals you can do. Um, and ultimately, again, not, not to excuse uh, the tabloids here, but like, what do you expect from a snake but a hiss? It's what they do. They do it to everybody. And the Daily Mail was cheering Meghan Markle during the wedding. It was like a new era. They, I don't remember this period. I, I remember, sorry, this period, you know, my, my significant other was at the wedding and covering it. And there was euphoria. And finally, the family's modernizing. And this is a great thing. And that was universal. There wasn't anybody going, oh, my God, I can't believe a black person is going to be in the family. You know, I'm sure some people thought it, uh, but but nobody actually said it. And I think it was what happened subsequent to that, that somehow changed the dynamic. And I don't think we've gotten the full, full story about that. And I think it's always that kind of jarring moment where you realize that I'm going to change the way things are done when I get into that family and boy, I'm going to get them going here, here. And then you realize you just, you have no ability to affect change and you're kind of stuck in this thing. And how do you deal with that? And, And I think we've seen them deal with it by getting out of it. But if you're out of it, you're out of it. And that was the deal. And now they're back into it. And and I think that's kind of where a lot of the resentment in the tabloids comes from, is you don't kind of, you know, you don't take a shit on Her Majesty's door, basically. Uh, that's just not done. And nobody thinks that that should be done because everybody loves the Queen. If there's one unifying thing, even amongst the Republicans here, there's a respect for her that is deep and, and long, long-lasting. And, and to have this done no matter what you think about the particulars has put her majesty in an awful position. Uh, and particularly with the unnamed kind of racist in the family that just put a cloud over everybody, which even they felt they had to walk back by, by having Oprah say, look, it, it wasn't her majesty or, or Prince Philip. When I think everybody had Prince Philip in their head. Um, but then is it Prince Charles? Is it Camilla? Is it Will? Is it Kate? And, and that's not fair on them to leave that hanging out there as well. So what an awful mess. And it's, I think it's just the tone of regret that it's come to this is the kind of overwhelming. And then that feeds anger on the tabloid side. And it's a struggling business, right? They got to sell some papers. So they're going to give us 30 pages on this because people are buying it. I've probably come at this a little bit differently than Andrew on some of those points, but you know, I, I do, I, I do get the, I think the background in terms of the relationship between the tabloids and the royal family is is an important part of context. I guess I look at it and go, it was at it was at some point in time when the royals accepted, maybe they didn't have a choice, that their essential value proposition for most people was going to be as celebrities, as dispensers of pictures, um, and. That's a little bit of a deal with the devil. And uh, whether or not it was right to make that deal um, or it was right at the moment because the alternative seemed horrible. But ultimately now it looks to me like um, other than the queen, uh, who I agree with Andrew is is very much loved, but she isn't going to live forever. Um, And then what happens after that when you've got all of these people who are um, tarnished uh, with the exception of so far will and kate but i think that harry kind of signaled in the interview that he's holding a card uh, that he may play at some point in the future by saying this happened and i'm not going to say who it was and then the next day excluding two people from the who it was 
he was actually, you know, maybe he was protecting himself from criticism, but maybe he was just kind of narrowing the message uh, to the family, which is if you come after me anymore, if you do more things to try to damage me or my wife or put me at risk, um, this story isn't over. I kind of interpreted what he was doing there as quite deliberate and a signal to the family that he wasn't going to be pushed around. Um, now, who was pushing him was, around one year, one year after getting exiled? Like it, it, the thing, the issue just kind of dropped off the radar here. It was accepted that they were over there and, and nobody was like, what were they responding to with this interview? I guess is my question to that point, Bruce is I don't think anybody had a gun to his head saying, we're going to take another run at you. Um, unless I missed, unless I missed that. Uh, well, I don't know that there was an active, uh, there was certainly nothing public, but it did sound as though there were some things behind the scenes, and I don't know whether they were true or not. And I'm not, I'm not here, kind of saying I, I thought that Harry and Meghan covered themselves in glory in this thing, um, but just it, it feels to me that, you know, that race question was uh, deny it if it's not true. Don't just say interpretations can vary, and they didn't deny it. And interpretations may vary doesn't, you know, exclude the fact that it might have happened. And then the other question really about mental health. I don't think that today it makes a difference whether, and I don't think you were saying this, Andrew, whether in Prince, when Prince Charles went to Wales that people ever talked about mental health. And so if, if you grew up in a family that didn't talk about it, then you don't talk about it now. I think we live in a different time, and I think it's good that we live in a different time. And I think the expectations are that uh, institutions of leadership – are supposed to be better than uh, what Meghan Markle was describing or be able to say that happened and, and it was unfortunate and we're going to fix it or something like that rather than just interpretations may vary. But, you know, I, I, I do think that issue and, and the prominence of social media mean that the royal family are on thinner ice than ever uh, on that issue of mental health and how it's dealt with. You know, um, Bruce mentioned something a few moments ago that, you know, everybody thinks about, but there really isn't much discussion about because nobody wants it to happen anytime soon. And that is the fact that the queen's not going to live forever. She's 94. Um, you know, her mother um, lasted into, you know, past 100. Um, so there's reason to believe that, um, you know, she's she's got a number of years left. Uh, but it is going to end at a certain point. And the question becomes, you know, can the monarchy survive? Once she's gone, I mean, if she went today, Charles becomes um, king. He's seventy-two. He could be king for thirty years. You know, Will could be an an old guy by the time he gets his turn. So, um, you know, there's much hope placed in sort of Will and his sons as to the the future, but that's not the future. Uh, the future is no Elizabeth, and how that changes the, the big equation, frankly, for a lot of people, whether it's in Britain or in the Commonwealth and including in Canada, as to whether or not the monarchy can and should survive. Uh, you know, how, how common is the discussion about that in Britain these days, uh, Andrew, and has it picked up in these last two days, or is that just not an issue? I think I think it should be, and I think it's avoided strenuously here for that very reason. Is is that you know, if you think about what's changed in this world, 
you know, forget like the last 50, 60 years, 65 years, whatever it is, you know, they, I guess we're coming up on 70 years for her majesty. Right. Um, a lot has changed and she's a constant. And, and I think we undervalue, I would say this is conservative, the kind of constancy and things and symbols that you can point to that you understand that have always been there with you in your life. And, and that whole idea of change and how much change do you take? And I, I fear the monarchy is going to be reduced and, and I'm probably okay with this, but it's going to be some version of like Senate reform in Canada. It's like, yeah, the system sucks, but when you actually have to change it, how can you actually change it? And is it worth changing? And is it worth making Canada a Republic? Well, then that opens up a whole constitution. Ah, we just can't be bothered. And that conversation gets parked as long as the figurehead on top is somebody that we kind of all, you know, looks like grandma and, and, and is quite wise. And, and I think, you know, I suspect that, that the best chance for survival would be skipping a generation and giving it to a younger, you know, to Will and Kate to kind of try to try to bridge that and, and not bridge it in a way that I think Harry and Meghan want to bridge it by being celebrity royals, but by reincarnating the spirit of Elizabeth II and and being the institution that's there that doesn't say much, that doesn't get involved in the mucky day-to-day details, but provides that kind of lodestar of, of that's something I understand and, and something that I just know is there and that's my comfort blanket and we don't have to talk about all the other awful stuff if it should go. Um, but, but look, I think, you know, when she, when she goes, when she goes, it's, it is going to be, you know, it it will almost be the last figure of global standing really like Mandela type that everybody around the world will go, Oh my God, that person's gone. And then, you know, the world is now so atomized that I don't think we'll have that. And I think we underplay how much that will hurt uh, when it happens. I do think that the watching Charles, I think it was a few years ago, um, he looked like he embarked on a very determined effort to say, look, if you had thought I was controversial and I had strong opinions and and I, you know, was kind of curious and uh, <laughs> and notable, I don't want you to think that anymore. I want you to understand that I will have nothing to say if and when this wonderful opportunity finally comes to rest on my shoulder, I will, I will make no waves, rock no boats. Just let me have this. <laughs> and uh, just, just and a I simple organic it. farmer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, with a huge duchy of corn. Is it the duchy of Cornwall? It's yeah. anyway. I kind of find the whole in the world that you you talking about what things have changed. I do think that the income inequality conversation has been changing too, and. I don't think it matters as long as Elizabeth is the queen. But I think that the the prospect of all of that wealth, all of that property, all of that permanent entitlement accruing to Charles, who I don't think has the the popularity or the skill set to become popular, I think that's going to be a challenge um, in a, in a modern time. I don't think it would be, uh, I agree with you, as much of a challenge if it skipped the generation, because I do think that on some level, people appreciate the permanence of the symbol, especially if the symbol, the aspect of the symbol that they really enjoy is the idea of acting with dignity uh, and uh, a sense of you know, public service and class, um, and not class in the upper class sense, but just... Uh, mm you know, with, with grace. And um, I'm not sure how easily Charles will inhabit uh, that role, um, given 
just the way he comes across and the way he, you know, he's, he's we've watched him for 72 years. I'm, I haven't, I'm not 72 yet, but Peter's watched him for 72 I've years. Every now. day. Oh, I've watched, blow, blow. I, every, I've watched every single day. I will tell you one thing. <laughs> if you think he's got a grudge or has the possibility of having a grudge for spending a year in Wales, <laughs> can you imagine what he'll think when they come to him and say, actually, we'd like to skip a generation here. <laughs> You're on the bench. It's the, ultimate pr- it's the ultimate proof of service and, and belief in the institution, though, if you can kind of sublimate your own self-interest to the greater good, right? And I think that would be a litmus test for them. And, you know, I, I could see him as the cuddly grandpa in that scenario who kind of has his, his pet issues and and, and can lead on, on whether it's the environment or other issues that he's shown that he's cared about. I think he can dip into that water in a way he couldn't as sovereign. And, you know, uh, uh, just speaking about conversations that would be interesting to be in the room for, I think there's a case to be made. And, and yeah, I mean, God, I can't imagine, you know, the, you spend your whole life waiting for that chance to kick the football. And then somebody says, like, look, no, you don't get a chance. You know, the joke's on you. That would take a lot. But what action would show greater understanding of the institution? And then the concept of service, then, then declining service, as paradoxical as that might be. But if, if they if they're serious about wanting this thing to kind of keep going on, for all the attendant reasons, they I think they have to look hard at it. And, and if anybody in Buckingham Palace is listening and wants to hire me to advise on that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think you have just about enough money. <laughs> yeah, you imagine how much they spent already this week on communications. Good Actually, God, you know, yeah. I. Maybe he'd come up with a solution like um, the Catholic Church did, where the the Pope sort of sits there for two years and then says, okay, you know what, that's enough for me. Let's move it over to the next person. Uh, and, you know, I can't even remember that Pope's name. And, you know, I should. My gosh, I was there for his uh, installation, and I was there for uh, when Pope Francis. Benedict, wasn't it Benedict? Benedict, you're right. Ratzenberger. Yeah, Benedict. Yeah, that's right, Ratzenberger. All right, listen, Andrew, it's been fabulous having you on. We wanted to talk a little bit about Canadian politics. We're going to have to bring you back to do that because this is an exciting landscape here uh, right now. Who knows what's going to happen in these next couple of months. Uh, And through the rest of this year, the expectation now is uh, that there's likely to be an election, but there's so many balls in the air and there's so many uh, people's futures, including leaders, uh, where there are big questions uh, about their performance, and we'd love to get you in on that discussion, and we will uh, in uh, in the next little while. But this has been a real insight, uh, I'm sure, for a lot of people as to how these kind of decisions are made about what to say and how to say it and when to say it. And uh, we've uh, really appreciated your time. So uh, yeah, absolutely, great to talk to you again, Andrew. Yeah. No, uh, thanks so much for having me on. It's always fun. Great. So that's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth for this week. Uh, tomorrow, the Potpourri Thursday. Friday is uh, is your letters on um, uh, the weekend special. And if you have thoughts on this issue, including whether or not the monarchy should continue in this country, uh, don't be shy. Send it along to mansbridgepodcast at gmail.com, mansbridgepodcast at gmail.com. Also tomorrow, Good Talk with Chantelle Bear. That's 5 o'clock um, Eastern on SiriusXM. Go to SiriusXM.ca slash Peter Mansbridge. There's specials on there right now for you to get access to that podcast. Uh, and you'll you'll want to hear it. It's a good one. All right. Uh, that is it for this day. Thank you so much for listening to The Bridge, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Uh, we'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.